Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Stairway to Danger, which is number nine in the Rick Brandt Young Adult Stories. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. As usual, let me remind you that though the book says it was written in 1952 by the pseudonymous John Blaine, it was actually authored by Harold Leland Goodwin. Hale Goodwin co-wrote the first three books in the series with Peter J. Harkins, but created books 4 through 24 by himself. So, with Stairway to Danger, we are firmly in high-flying Goodwin territory. As far as the story itself is concerned, after spending so much time in the literal depths of Asia in the Caves of Fear, Rick and Scotty stay close to home in this volume. It is set mostly in an abandoned amusement park down the coast from Spindrift Island in New Jersey. They investigate a hit-and-run case and are up against more hardened domestic criminals than usual, as they become part of a manhunt for a fugitive crime lord. A new robot and Rick's beloved Piper Cub play a role in this story. I have complained previously about the awful cover art. Rick and Scotty looked about ten years old on the cover of The Caves of Fear. In Stairway to Danger, Rick fares no better, he again looks nowhere near the 18 to 19 years old that he is supposed to be, appearing no more than a tween. This may be the worst cover in the whole series. Besides Rick looking like a young derp, as my teenage kids might say, the roller coaster track proportions are all wrong and make no sense. It's entirely unclear what the green thing is supposed to be on the gunman's head, and the composition in general is laughable. But you cannot judge a book by its lousy cover art, so here is Stairway to Danger. Chapter 1. The Thoughtful Robot It's weird, Rick Brandt said. It is uncanny. He perched on the edge of his father's desk and stared at the famous scientist. It sounds like science fiction, Dad. Will it really work? Hartson Brandt smiled. It isn't like you to doubt a scientific probability, Rick. If we weren't sure it would work, we wouldn't be putting so much time and money into the project. Except for the gray in the scientist's hair, he might have been Rick's elder brother. Both were lean and long-legged. Both had brown eyes and light brown hair. Their mannerisms were the same, and they even dressed somewhat alike, preferring slacks and open shirts to more formal attire. Don Scott called Scotty shook his head at the elder Brant's amused grin. I'm like Rick. I don't doubt the scientific probability on this project, but the idea of a thinking robot is kind of hard to swallow. All I hope is that this robot doesn't have a wrong sense of humor. Imagine a machine pulling practical jokes. Hartson Brant chuckled. Even that isn't too far-fetched, Scotty. 
Wait until you get better acquainted with Parnell Winston. His sense of humor runs to practical jokes, and there's no telling what he might build into this machine. He must be good, Rick said. He's very good indeed, son. He's as close to a genius as we have on the staff. Rick's eyebrows went up. That was high tribute, because the Spindrift Scientific Foundation staff, which his father headed, had more than their share of brains. Leading scientists from all over the world wrote or came to the little island off the New Jersey coast for aid or advice. More than once, the United States government had looked to Spindrift for help. In fact, Rick Scotty and Professor Hobart Zircon had just returned from the Far East, where they aided the government in locating the source of an Asiatic supply of heavy water. They had almost lost their lives in the fabulous caves of fear near the Chinese-Tibetan border in tracking down what might have been a menace to the security of the United States. During their absence, three new members had been added to the Spindrift staff, including Dr. Parnell Winston, a cyberneticist. Cybernetics, Rick knew, had something to do with the relationship between the human mind and machines. The giant brains, the electronic computers, were the results of that new science. Dr. Winston, however, had immediately started on a different kind of problem. He had undertaken to build a machine capable of thinking. I'm a little confused, Rick admitted. Barbie told us something about the project, but I can't believe she had it straight. Barbara Brandt, his pretty sister, had been more excited about the new project than about the trip from which they had returned only the day before. That's right, Scotty said. She told us the machine could be eight feet tall, have six arms, and sense enough to make cakes, give permanent waves, and repair television sets all at once. Hartson Brandt chuckled. That's Parnell Winston for you. He teases Barbie almost as much as you do. Seriously, this robot will have limited use. If you can visualize an armor-plated bulldozer, that will give you a good idea. Rick tried to picture it. You mean a regular bulldozer? A tractor with a big blade for pushing things around? Regular in two ways, the scientist said. It will have a bulldozer blade and caterpillar treads like a tank. But it will look more like a huge turtle than a bulldozer. Why a bulldozer? Rick asked. Couldn't you think of something more human for our first real robot? We didn't select the design, Hartson Brandt explained. It was selected for us by the Atomic Energy Commission and the Department of Defense. That is secret, by the way. Our connection with them is not to be discussed. The AEC wants the machine to help dispose of radioactive waste. The Department of Defense wants it, well, for obvious reasons. You can see how valuable an armored machine capable of thinking for itself could be to the Army or the Marines. Scotty sat forward on the edge of his chair. That's terrific, he exclaimed. You could tell the bulldozer to go cover up an enemy pillbox with dirt and never risk a man. Yeah, Rick said, but I still don't get this part about how it thinks. Unless you mean it'll have a memory and learn from experience. Hartson Brandt nodded. That's exactly right, Rick. It will not be capable of really creative thought, but it will be able to remember and interpret its memories. Rick kept abreast of new developments by reading all the scientific journals to which the staff subscribed, and he knew that an English scientist named Walter 
had created machines that could go almost that far. Dr. Walter had named his latest one Machina Docilis because it was capable of learning. This Mindriff machine evidently was another step along the same line. Scotty scratched his head. How about an example, Dad? The scientist tamped tobacco into his pipe. All right, Scotty, take an enemy pillbox as an example. Imagine it with concrete tank pillars in front of it. You know the kind I mean. They're like huge concrete teeth. We would merely instruct the tank buster, our robot, to destroy the pillbox, and we would give it compass directions. The machine would advance until it struck the concrete pillars. It would try to knock them down. If it failed, it would probably go completely around the pillbox looking for a weak point. If it found no weak point, it would probably back off and start shoving dirt until it buried the concrete pillars, and then it would roll right over them. It would try then to crush the pillbox. If that failed, it would probably just bury the thing by shoving dirt. You keep saying probably, Rick pointed out. Don't you know? Not exactly. The machine would try everything within its capabilities, remembering each failure and each weakness. It would keep trying until it succeeded or failed altogether. Scotty stood up. I quit. This is too much. I'm a simple soul, and such things are not for the likes of me. Next thing you know, we'll have pixies or leprechauns running around the lab. Rick grinned in sympathy. He knew how Scotty felt, because he had the same feeling himself. It was uncanny. Where do we fit in, Dad? he asked. Dr. Winston has assignments for you, Hartson Brandt said. Plan to start in the morning as early as possible. We're rushing to meet a deadline the Department of Defense has given us, and you may find yourself working nights. You can fly to work, Rick. I checked the field bordering the amusement park. There's room enough to land there, although the grass is a little long. The robot project was not on Spindrift Island, but a place down the coast. When finished, the machine would weigh several tons, and the scientists had decided it would be easier to travel to work than to face the engineering problem of getting it to the mainland from an island. Dr. Winston had found a place below the town of Seaford, a building owned by a small college. The building was next to Seaside Playland, an amusement park that had gone out of business about two years before. Hartzenbrandt himself was not taking part in the project. He was working with Shannon and Briotti, two of the new scientists on a forthcoming expedition. Zircon was starting work on the same expedition. Julius Weiss, Spindrift's brilliant mathematician, was working with Dr. Winston. Come on, Rick, Scotty said. Let's get back down to Earth. I'm in need of something simple but sustaining. Like donuts with milk. The young men left the scientist to his work and walked to the kitchen where Mrs. Brandt was seated at the kitchen table going over her accounts. Rick gave her a bear hug. How's the donut situation, Mom? Good, Mrs. Brandt replied, smiling. Unless Barbie has had more than her share. Scotty was already investigating the donut jar. Where is she, Mom? In Whiteside. Jerry Webster is covering a swimming meet at the scout camp. She went along with him. 
Jerry Webster, reporter for the Whiteside Morning Record, was an old friend. I hope she took a bathing suit along, Rick said, pouring a tall glass of cold milk. Some of the scouts are good, but I'd put my money on Barbie. She could be a champion if only she'd practice. Barbie was a year younger than Rick, and although they had their minor battles, as brother and sister often do, he was very proud of her, even though it was a pride he didn't often express. In the same way, he was proud of Scotty. The ex-Marine, an orphan, had been a member of the Spindrift family since the moon rocket experiment. The two young men had become closer than brothers and had shared danger and fun in equal proportions. Both of them were on the payroll of the Spindrift Foundation as junior technicians. They finished their milk and donuts and wandered from the kitchen door to the orchard. Beyond the orchard on the seaward side of the island was a grassy stretch which Rick used as an airfield. The small plain was moored under the trees. On the inland edge of the orchard were new cottages, built to house the new staff members and their families. Rick had had some misgivings when his father decided to enlarge the staff, but after meeting the new people, he was satisfied that the increase was a good thing. They were all very congenial. On the southeast tip of the island were the low, gray stone laboratory buildings. Rick led the way toward them, curious about the work in progress. He stopped and examined the cub. He hadn't flown it since leaving for Hong Kong. Let's go for a hop, Scotty suggested. Rick shook his head. I'd rather see what's happening in the lab, but we might turn the engine over and see if it still runs. Okay, Scotty agreed. He checked the gas gauge. Plenty of fuel. Get in, I'll crank the prop. Rick slid into the pilot's seat and moved the wheel-type control column. The controls responded. He checked the switch and called, Switch off! Switch off, Scotty repeated. He pulled the propeller through a few times to prime the cylinders and then called, Switch on! Switch on, Rick repeated. He advanced the throttle and snapped on the switch. Scotty pulled the propeller back on compression. The engine coughed. Scotty tried again, and this time the engine caught. Rick let it warm, watching his instrument panel carefully and holding fast on the brakes. When he was satisfied that everything was in perfect order, he cut the engine and got out. Runs like a watch, he said with satisfaction. Now let's see what's happening at the lab. The laboratory buildings had been built originally by the government, then purchased by the Spindrift Foundation with the cash prize resulting from the moon rocket. Since then, the Spindrift Group had added equipment until the laboratories compared favorably with any in the country. The Spindrift portion of a treasure found while exploring the bottom of the Pacific had permitted the purchase of new equipment and the salaries of the three new staff members. As the boys walked into the main room, two men looked up. Dr. Howard Shannon was very tall and very thin. He wore glasses so thick they magnified his eyes, but they were eyes with a twinkle in them, and their color was a brilliant blue. His thinning hair was almost white. Rick's first impression had been of a bookworm, but then he noticed Dr. Shannon's big, powerful hands. He had noticed also that the scientist's face was weathered from years in the sun and wind, and he suspected that Howard Shannon probably was 
as good a trail companion as Weiss or Zircon. Dr. Anthony Briotti was surprisingly young to be a famous archaeologist. He was a medium height, well-knit, with black hair and a deeply tanned complexion. He had a pleasant grin that showed white, even teeth. Both boys had liked him at once. He was more like someone of their own age than a senior scientist. He was the only bachelor among the new staff members. It had never occurred to either Rick or Scotty to call the older scientists anything but doctor or professor. But within a few moments after meeting, they had quite naturally started calling Briotti Tony. Dr. Shannon greeted them. Good afternoon. Both rested from your trip, I hope. Sure they are, Tony Briotti said. I can tell by looking at him, and you can bet curiosity brought him in here. I'm surprised they haven't shown up sooner, especially when we're planning a new trip. We had to get a little sleep, Rick protested, but you're right, we are curious. What's going on? A joint project, Shannon said. Usually, as a naturalist, I have rather special interests, but Dr. Briotti has come up with a plan that, as he says, is right down my alley. Tony smiled. In other words, he thinks some very interesting new bugs are located near a place where I hope to find some fine artifacts. Seriously, I'm in hope of tracking down the race of people that built the Temple of Alta Yuan, which you so kindly dug up for me. The search for the lost temple, drowned ages ago in the Pacific, had taken the Spindrift group to Quangara Island a short time before. It'll be a good trick if you can do it, Scotty said. They vanished centuries ago. Consider me a kind of detective. I'm a bureau of missing persons that works only on cases a thousand years old. I've got a good clue. Hope it works out. What do you hope to find, Dr. Shannon? Rick asked. The tall scientist polished his thick glasses. I really have little hope, but there is a possibility. I may succeed in finding the rarest of all beetles, Scarabaeus plunderus, an ancient relative of the Egyptian scarab. If I find the beetle in the same area where Briotti uncovers his lost people, it may also show that they came originally from the Near East. Rick hit a grin. The Spindrift scientists had gone on expeditions for many things, but going after anything so unromantic as a beetle was a new twist. Is there anything else you'll be hunting? he asked. Indeed there is, Dr. Shannon exclaimed. The beetle would be the prize, but I also hope to find a few varieties of sensitive mimosa. There may possibly be a chance to collect a few cloud rats, and if there is time for side trips, I should like very much to pick up a slow loris. Scotty looked incredulous. You're making up those names, he accused. Shannon peered at him over the top of his glasses. Eh, making them up? No, indeed. Tony Briotti laughed heartily. There really are such critters, he assured him. Only a naturalist like Howard would know about them, though, or get excited about them. But they do exist. Dr. Shannon smiled. Thank you, Anthony. I acknowledge your support. To the boys, he added, We will make a first-class team, Dr. Briotti and I. We have interests in common. Beetles, for example. We both like beetles. But where I prefer to take them alive as specimens, Anthony prefers them mummified and at least ten centuries old. 
Rick didn't quite know what to make of the conversation for a moment. Then he saw this was Dr. Shannon's dry way of making a joke. He started to ask the location of the new expedition when the phone rang. There was a streak of clairvoyance in Rick. He explained it by saying he had hunches. But there it was. He knew the moment the phone rang that it was for him and that it meant disaster. He was leaping for the phone even as Briotti answered. Then he handed the instrument to him. Rick took it, his heart beating rapidly. Yes? Better come at once, Rick, Hartson Brandt said. His voice was shaking. We just got a call from Captain Douglas of the state police. Jerry and Barbie are in the hospital. They've been struck by a hit-and-run driver. Chapter 2 The Search Rick dashed into the front door of the big house, Scotty close behind him. Hartson Brandt beckoned from the library. His usually tanned face was white. It's not serious, he said quickly. Barbie's being x-rayed right now. At worst, it will only be a broken bone. But it will probably turn out to be nothing more than a badly twisted angle. Jerry is bruised, but he's all right. Rick's heart went out of his throat. Captain Douglas is on the phone. The scientist continued. He wants to speak to you. Rick's hand shook a little as he picked up the phone. This is Rick, Captain. The state police officer said, I need you, Rick. I want to get that hit-and-run car that almost got Barbie and Jerry. But most of my men are tied up now helping the New York police look for Soapy Strayed. He escaped from prison last night. I want you to get in your plane and start searching toward the south for the hit-and-run car. Cover the area from Whiteside to the junction of the Shore Road and Route 1. Gus is already in the air. He's covering the area between Whiteside and Newark. What men I can spare from the New York job are going to cover the roads north of Whiteside. What do I look for? Rick asked. A maroon sedan. Captain Douglas named the make and gave Rick the license number. Take a sack and some weights with you, and paper and pencil. You know where the police stations are in Seaford and Jerry's Crossing. If you pick up the car, drop a note giving the direction and the road. I'm phoning the police in those towns to watch for you. Once you've dropped the note, pick up the car again and keep following it until you see a police car stop it. Got it? Got it, Rick returned swiftly. I'm on my way. Step on it. The sedan has a 15-minute head start. And don't worry about Barbie and Jerry. They're all right. I'm sorry this had to happen when most of my men are tied up hunting strayed. But I'm betting on you to find that hit-and-run car. Rick hung up and repeated the conversation to his father and Scotty as he hurriedly collected paper, pencil, and a pair of lead weights from his father's desk. Then he rushed to the kitchen, rummaged in a drawer, and found a sugar sack. His mother was already on her way to Whiteside in one of the motorboats. I'm going with you, Hartson Brandt said as Rick returned. You can drop me at the airport. I'll join Mother and Barbie at the hospital. Rick's plane was only a two-seater, but he didn't say anything. The extra load wouldn't put the plane beyond the safety limits, and this was an emergency. The three of them ran from the house to where the plane was staked down. Rick and the scientist got in while Scotty untied the plane pulled the chocks from in front of the wheels, and then spun the prop. The engine caught immediately, and Scotty got in, taking his seat on Hartson Brandt's lap. 
Rick adjusted his trim tabs for the heavy load and then taxied to the very end of the strip. Holding fast on the brakes, he revved up the engine until it howled. Then he released the brakes and the plane rolled forward. The tail came up sluggishly. Rick held the cub on the ground as long as he dared, then slowly pulled back on the wheel. The plane left the ground with only a few feet of runway to spare. Made it, Scotty said quietly. Not too heavy, Dad? The scientist grunted. You're about 150 pounds too heavy for a comfortable lap sitting, Scotty. But I can stand it if you can. Rick adjusted his trim tabs a little more and then asked, Dad, who's Soapy Strayed? Captain Douglas didn't explain. I guess he thought I knew about it, but I don't. Harson Brandt got a little more comfortable. He's a gang leader, Rick. He had one of the biggest crime rings in the East until he made the mistake of kidnapping a wealthy banker. That made it possible for the FBI to take action. He drew a 20-year sentence. I don't remember reading about it, Scotty said. It happened while we were in the Western Pacific, Hartson Brandt explained. I didn't know about it either until the news broke last night that he had escaped. Both the New York and New Jersey police are hunting him. I'm not surprised Captain Douglas hasn't many men to help us. Whiteside was already in view. Rick hadn't bothered climbing for altitude. He swept over the town at little more than 500 feet. He picked up the windsock at the Whiteside airport, banked into the wind and cut the throttle. In a few moments they were on the ground. Rick taxied at high speed to the hangar and the scientists got out. The boys waved goodbye and Rick yelled, Tell Barbie we'll catch that car, Scotty added, and tell her we'll see her not, either at the hospital or at home. Rick poured throttle to the little plane and took off crosswind. He estimated quickly that the hit-and-run car couldn't get out of the area in less than 30 minutes, no matter how fast it traveled. That gave him about 10 minutes leeway, just enough to reach the junction of the shore road and Route 1. The highway curved along the coast, but Rick flew in a straight line. We'll get to the junction and then work back, he told Scotty. Better get the binoculars out of the back. Already got him, Scotty said. He held up the glasses. Rick climbed to about 2,500 feet. He had the cub wide open, time enough to throttle down to cruising speed once they reached the junction. His mouth was set in a straight line. If the maroon sedan was in the area, he would find it. The fact that Barbie and Jerry were not seriously injured had nothing to do with his intentions. He was going to get that sedan. Nobody could put his sister in danger and get away with it. Scotty looked at him. Relax, pal. We may be flying for a couple of hours. You can't make this airplane go any faster by sitting there like a ramrod. Rick hadn't realized he was so tense. He sat back at his seat a little, then worked the tabs until the plane was perfectly balanced and able to fly itself. The tabs were small, movable pieces on the control surfaces that enabled the pilot to trim the plane to match weight distribution. Far to the left was the Atlantic Ocean. Inland, curving to follow the coastline, was the shore road. The plane was moving slowly away from the road, cutting across a wide swing it made toward the town of Seaford. Rick didn't need a map. He knew the area as well as he knew Spindrift Island. The shore road met main U.S. Highway 1 
just below the town of Jerick's Crossing. From the junction, he intended to work north along the shore. There were only two roads that turned off the shore road between the junction and Whiteside. One of them peered out into a wood road. The other curved into a small village and then joined the shore road again. Scotty motioned to the right. The main highway was in sight. We'll be there in a couple minutes, he said. He held up the binoculars and looked ahead through the plexiglass windshield. After a moment, he added, Coming up. Want to lose a little altitude? Good idea, Rick agreed. He put the cub into a shallow dive, letting it pick up speed as they went. Presently, the intersection was below them. Cars could be easily identified by color, although not by make. Rick banked sharply, wrapping the cub in a tight circle. Both he and Scotty watched carefully, but no maroon cars were in sight. Car couldn't have gotten here so soon, Scotty said. Let's head north up the shore road. Rick looked at his friend, sensing something in the other boy's voice. No doubt about it, Scotty was controlling some deep anger. Rick had been so busy since the phone call that he hadn't been conscious of how Scotty felt. Now he knew. Scotty was as fond of Barbie as if she were his own sister. We'll find the car if it's in our area, Rick stated positively. He put the cub on a northward course at slightly less than a thousand feet altitude. From that height, they could see great stretches of the road, but it was still possible to tell the car's color without error. The shore road was almost deserted. There was little traveled except by people who lived in the towns along the coast, because the main highway south from Newark was much better. They passed over Jarek's Crossing without seeing more than a half dozen cars. None of them were maroon. Jarek's Crossing was called that because of its railroad bridge over a section of the marshland, and it was asleep in the afternoon sun. A short distance above the crossing, Rick saw an angular structure loom on the horizon. In a few moments, he identified it as the roller coaster at Seaside Amusement Park. Its form became more rounded and other buildings became visible. On the south side of the park was a building with a slate roof. That was the location of the new Spindrift project. As the plane neared the amusement park, Rick saw it was surrounded by a high board fence. On the roadside, there was a good stretch of grass. That was where he would land in the morning when they reported for work. Scotty watched the highway through the binoculars, examining every car. There is nothing rottener than a hit-and-run driver, Scotty said once. Rick nodded but didn't reply. He was suddenly conscious that the plane still moved at top speed. He throttled back to cruising speed, taking an anxious look at the gas gauge. He had enough for another hour's flying time. That would be plenty. If an hour passed with no sign of the maroon car, it would mean that it wasn't in the search area. He swung off the main shore road onto a turnoff, covered it completely, and then swung south again to retrace some ground in case the maroon car had passed while he was exploring the byway. No maroon car was in sight, although nearly every other color was represented in the thin stream of traffic. Safer to head, Scotty said. Tenseness was growing in Rick again. The maroon car would have gotten farther south than Seaford. 
He dropped to 800 feet and circled the town. Then he did figure eights, giving Scotty a chance to examine every street. There weren't many. He flew north along Million Dollar Row to Smuggler's Reef. When he saw the creek house below, he turned inland again and went south along the shore road. When he had covered enough of the highway to be sure the maroon car hadn't slipped by while he circled over Seaford, Rick went north again. He found the turnoff that ended in a wood road and followed it until it lost itself in cut-over timber. There was no sign that a car had been on the road, even though he dropped down to treetop height to permit a close look at the dirt road itself. We missed it, Scotty said tonelessly. Yeah, Rick brightened at the thought. But don't forget the other areas are covered, too. Maybe Gus or the state police found some sign of it. I hope so. Scotty didn't take his eyes from the terrain below. But I wish Captain Douglas had all his troops looking for the car with us instead of hunting a gangster. Rick considered. He didn't know where the accident had taken place. But the camp where the swimming meet was held happened to be west of Whiteside. A hit-and-run driver would have to go right through the town to reach the shore road. That wasn't impossible, of course, but it was unlikely, unless the car had a definite destination within the area. If the driver didn't know the area, he probably wouldn't take a chance on unknown roads. He would head west, planning to lose himself in the maze of traffic around Newark, Bayonne, and the other sprawling industrial cities of the New Jersey flatlands. If he did know the roads, he would realize that going south would trap him, so he would surely go west. Gus, the manager of the Whiteside Airport and Rick's good friend, was covering the western sector. If the maroon sedan had gone west, Gus would spot it for sure. Rick covered the highway right into Whiteside itself. For luck, he circled over the town as he had over Seaford. There was no maroon sedan. We're going home, he told Scotty. I'm anxious to find out how Barbie is. Same here, Scotty agreed. Anyway, we're sure the car didn't go south. If it did, the driver put the car in a garage or something. It isn't out in the open or we'd have seen it. Maybe we ought to take a look at those summer cottages below Spindrift, Rick said thoughtfully. He banked south once again. A short distance down the coast from his home, were two summer colonies. He lost altitude and went over them low enough to see every detail. In spite of the trees, he was certain no maroon car was in either of the settlements. The trees weren't thick enough to hide a car, nor did the cottages have garages. That pretty much does it, Scotty said. Rick headed the cub towards Spindrift, in sight on the ocean ahead. From the air, one could see the Spindrift was not really an island. It was connected to the mainland by a rocky tidal flat. It was above water at low tide. However, no car could cross the flat, and it was difficult for foot traffic. So the island's privacy was guaranteed. Rick circled in order to look into the boat cove on the north side of the island. Both motorboats were tied to the dock. His father and mother were home then. Suddenly anxious, he slipped to lose altitude banked vertically over the laboratory, almost touching the radar antenna with his wing, and slapped the cub down onto spongy turf. He didn't wait to taxi back 
to the takeoff position. Instead, he let the Cub roll right to the front door of the big house that faced the Atlantic. He set the brakes and got out, Scotty right behind him. Rick ran up the steps and onto the porch, and then stopped short at the sight of Barbie. Word as he was, he couldn't restrain a grin. Barbara Brandt was a very pretty girl, always in radiant good health. Her high color and exuberant spirits had always made it impossible for her to look languid, and, as she put it, so spiritual. But now she looked very languid indeed, and she was making the most of it. The shock of the accident had drained the color from her face, and she looked very pale. The Brants had placed her in a comfortable armchair, her legs on a hassock. One leg was bandaged from knee to foot. Her golden head rested on a dark-colored pillow from the porch sofa. Rick, knowing his mother, was sure Mrs. Brant had wanted to use a regular soft bed pillow. He was equally sure that Barbie had insisted on the dark one knowing the pallor of her face would be much more dramatic. She raised a limp hand. Oh, Rick, she said huskily. Rick heard Scotty's sudden intake of breath behind him. Scotty didn't know Barbie like he did. Scotty thought Barbie's act was genuine illness. He didn't know that Barbie would be upstairs in bed with Mrs. Brandt in anxious attendance if she were actually as faint as she looked. Rick managed to control his grin that kept popping to the surface. Part of the grin was his pure relief at finding she was really all right. He feigned what he hoped was a worried look and hurried to her side. He took the limp hand. Will you live? he asked tenderly. There was sudden suspicion in Barbie's eyes, but she answered faintly. I hope so. How about Jerry? Rick asked. He was wonderful, Barbie sighed. Just wonderful. He carried me from the wreck all the way to the hospital. Rick had a mental image of Jerry, who wasn't particularly husky, carrying Barbie. In his arms? he asked incredulously. Well, no. Barbie bit her lip. How'd he carry you then? Rick demanded. A little color came into Barbie's face. He used a fireman's carry, she said. Rick coughed. He had to, to keep from laughing. How Barbie's love for the romantic and dramatic must have suffered. He had a picture of her draped over Jerry's shoulder like a sack of grain. First aid training is a wonderful thing, he managed. Don't you think so, Scotty? Scotty did. He looked at Barbie anxiously. Sure, right. Are you okay, sis? I'm fine, she assured him. How's the leg? Rick asked. It's all right, Barbie said. Rick nodded. He was sure the leg was all right, but he was just as sure it was very painful. Otherwise, Barbie's color would have come back, at least a little. But she was game. She would deny the pain to everyone except their mother. He squeezed her hand. You had us worried, sis. What happened? Jerry was bringing me to the boat landing, and we stopped at the light two blocks above the department store. He went ahead on green, but the other car went through the red and hit us. I didn't see the car. Jerry did. He even got the license number. The car backed away and then kept going. Jerry made sure I didn't have any broken bones and that I wasn't bleeding. Then he put me over his shoulder and took me to the hospital. 
I haven't seen him since. Rick knew the intersection. It was less than a hundred yards from the hospital. Also, Barbie's concise recital confirmed his belief that she was far from being as badly off as she looked. He said, We didn't find the car, sis. I'm going to call Captain Douglas. Maybe somebody else did. He left her with Scotty and went into the library. He shook his head as Hartz and Brandt asked if they'd had any luck. Barbie's fine, the scientist told him, except she won't be walking for a day or so. She's got a very painful bruise. Jerry had gone when we got to the hospital, so I assume he's all right. Rick called the state police barracks and got Captain Douglas. There was no sign of a maroon car of any description, he said. Any luck in the other areas? Not yet, Captain Douglas replied. But we haven't given up. The hit-and-run driver couldn't have gotten out to the main road, no matter what direction he took, before you and Gus got to the intersections. He's near Whiteside somewhere. The moment he pokes his nose out, we'll be there with a police car waiting for him. We're blocking all the roads to catch Soapy Strayed, and I've instructed the men at the roadblocks to watch for the hit-and-run car, too. Thanks for trying, Rick. I'll be here if you need me, Rick replied. You seen Jerry? Yeah, he came here as soon as he delivered Barbie to the hospital emergency room. He's at the morning record now. He kept his head and got a good description of the car. He also got the license number. We checked on it. It was stolen. No wonder it was a hit and run, Rick said thoughtfully. Looks like we've got car thieves to deal with. That'll make it easier, not harder, Captain Douglas assured him. We'll get the man responsible, Rick. Never fear. I know you will, Rick said, but I wish you had him now. Barbie's fine, but it's just luck. We'll get him, the captain said again. May take a little time, but it's sure. We'll get him, Rick. And from the tone of his voice, Rick knew that he meant it.